Welcome everyone to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm Allison. And we're excited to dive into, I guess, like the first of some episodes we might do on different eras of nostalgia. And we're diving into 40s nostalgia this episode and answering some of your questions. But first, I think we want to talk about, you know, a book that we're excited to share with people in the not too distant future. This is a book that should be on dad book tables around the country in time for Father's Day. Sadly, it will come out a few months after that, but I think it is a book that you will find on your holiday list, I hope. Very exciting. Our book is coming out November 7th, uh, also called Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl. It's part history, part travel memoir, part really history of a generation of people for whom American Girl meant something, was meaningful. There is a Molly on the cover. So if you find Molly polarizing, that cover can come off. So like <laughs> you will be safe even if like, yes. like she's not in the hula outfit. So I think if it's something that might make you kind of nervous, like it's by Molly's, but it's for everyone. So I think that's a really critical distinction. It's for everyone. And it was really critical to us that it not just be our stories with the brand, but be, you know, a lot of folks' stories. And We have that oral history or the storytelling project on our site where people have graciously granted us permission to share their stories with permission and attribution. So we're really happy to be able to have interviewed a lot of great people and done a lot of research and gone to places like Colonial Williamsburg, which inspired Pleasant in the first place. But it's just we're really excited to get to share it with all of you. But we wanted to kind of let you know that it is available for pre-order. So you can go online to bookseller of your choice and, you know, pre-order it, which really does help us kind of show the value of these kinds of stories and history. So, you know, we just wanted to let you know, like it's going to be out in the world November 7th. Yeah. And hopefully it'll be on your holiday list or like it'll be something that you want to give. So I have a feeling I might like get this book as a gift from my own mother because she's buying everyone. (laughs) So I think like it may come back to me in various ways. We'll see. I mean, we would love that. Wouldn't it be like psycho if somebody gives you the audio book, which, by the way, we are doing an audio book, which we're very excited about. We have not recorded it yet. We'll share more info with you as we do that. But um, imagine if somebody like sends you the audio book and you just start hearing your own boys yeah i'm not i'm not sure i i described myself yesterday actually as audiobook aspirational i love the idea of audiobook listening as reading i think it's super important i don't do it nearly as much as i think i do because i have a queue of 12 books which is like a not small investment on my part on my telephone and i don't think they're gonna get listened to and they're they're books i'm excited about they're books i care about i'm just so much more aspirational than actual audiobook listener but wow. you don't need to be like me you can listen to our audiobook you can pre-order and that is up so if you look up our book on mcmillan you can find that order as well Definitely. And I still feel betrayed by I was listening to the early pandemic days to Hillary Mantel's book um, series, the three volume series about Cromwell, which I got so drawn into. And the audiobook reader was like this amazing British man reading these books. So dramatic. I felt like it was him. And I'm listening to through book one and book two. And then I get to book three. and It was a different audiobook reader. And I was like, oh, like it just took me out of it. So, yeah. 
I mean, I know the power of an audiobook reader. So I don't know, the stakes are high. Can we handle it? I don't know, stay tuned. But you know, what else is up, Allison, in your life these days? Where are you taking in? What is bringing you joy? You know, honestly, I don't know that it's bringing me joy, but I've had a lot of like fun and intrigue preparing for this episode. The 40s as a decade, I will say, is not something I think about a ton, right, as kind of a separate period. But doing some digging around, I've learned that I don't like film and media from this period, but I'm very interested in books about this period. So that's been kind of a nice surprise. I'm currently reading a book called Bad Summer People, which is Mm. not what I hope to be, but it's about, you know, a kind of mystery and a dead body found in a in a small part of Fire Island. So that's something I'm taking in, taking like a little bit of a a break from television only because I'm not turning into um, Yellow Jackets kind of like deterred me. So that's all I'll say about the finale. But if you watched it, you know, you also wasted your time (laughs) in this like 20 part series. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I I have not I've never seen Yellow Jackets and I feel like from your description I think you told me directly I couldn't handle it and I believe you so I haven't seen it but I know from being online that people were unhappy with however it just ended. So I feel like I still shouldn't engage. My boss once said like it takes an interesting talent to make prohibition boring. That's something that my boss said of Ken Burns. And I think it takes like an interesting take when a show about cannibalism and possibly a cult in the woods becomes uninteresting. Like you're actively (laughs) doing something strange if that's happening. Yeah, I don't know. I think to me that just sounds like I think there's a culture wide problem with TV where particularly American TV where it's like we stay at the fair too long. Like there are certain shows I almost wish they could be challenged to know how it ends at the start and almost like, okay, we're going to fund two to three seasons of this. So you can do it soup to nuts. Like you can tell the whole story, but after season three, that is it. Because I feel like there are so many shows that, you know, it just goes sideways. Like they just, it's too long. I don't know. I'm trying to think of shows that have had like a perfect finale or you felt when it ended, like they stayed the right amount of time. I still haven't seen the secession finale, but I think people are kind of saying that about that ending that they feel good about how it ended i don't know but yeah i'm trying to think about I, good finales. i know everything but haven't watched the season okay so i know all of the things that occur and i've received the feedback from multiple people like you have to be in a very strong place to want to watch <laughs> that season right. And I said, I'm just like choosing when the sunshine is still shining until 8.30 p.m. to not watch Succession. To me, that's a winter series that I can bore down into. And bottom line, my desired outcome did not happen. Like the thing that I wanted to happen did not happen. Okay. So, you know, disappointment is integral to that show. And I'm just, I'm living it with them. So that's okay. It's like, we're all on a little What did you want to happen? I don't know if I want to give away, but I think there are camps of people who are, you know, really intimately rooting for different members of the family. And the person that I was rooting for the most, who is an objectively bad person, and this could be said of everyone on that show, was did not come out a winner and perhaps should not have, but I wanted that person to. So, okay. Got it. Well, I'm sorry it didn't work out the way you wanted, but hopefully when you do reach that point when you watch, you still, I don't know if enjoy it is the right word, but it's satisfying, I guess. 
yeah, I think so. And again, I've really enjoyed kind of thinking about and getting questions from a lot of you about your interest in going to the 1940s as a kind of place to think with and your curiosity about how Nenea stories and how Molly's stories kind of intersect. And I think in some worlds that might feel really separate from the kind of history that really gets pushed each June around World War II and certain kinds of topics that have been skewed towards like Father's Day purchases. But I think they're actually cut from the same cloth. So that might give us some, you know, interesting material to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I just want to acknowledge, I know like since the last time we recorded, and this comes up in something I would say about the dad books, like I actually in thinking about that created my own like counter dad book list, like books I wish dads would buy instead. And one of them is I, Tina by Tina Turner, because she's been on my mind and just like RIP, we're getting ready to do our Patreon on a book on black women in music. And she's certainly in there. But that has been sad, like to feel like we're on a planet without Tina Turner. But she's someone like to counter the, you know, stress of secession, like to me and Roxanne Gay said this in a tweet better than I will, but like her life represents someone who finds joy after like incredible struggle. And that's kind of what I'm sitting with today. But, you know, RIP Tina Turner. And now we can, I guess, get into all these great questions people sent in and things they want to talk about thinking with the 40s. Hello, everyone. This is Mary here to talk to you about HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes down to divvying up chores or sort of like household labor, there is nothing I want to do less than make dinner. And look, do I like to cook? Not really. I mean, sometimes for loved ones, if we're having people over, that's one thing. But the day-to-day grind of making dinner? Absolutely not. So that's where HelloFresh has really come in clutch because they offer all of these pre-portioned ingredients and recipes that come together really quickly and frankly taste really good. I think I've talked here before about the burger that has a kind of mushroom sauce on it and that did make me feel incredibly fancy preparing that for my wife, Um, but it wasn't that hard and it tasted genuinely so good. And I'm seeing that for summer, they also have snacks, excuse me, you can get s'more making kits, which I'm seeing labeled here as quote, for kids. I don't think so. That sounds right up my alley. And frankly, if you're someone who enjoys takeout, which I also do, this is a way to kind of save some money built in right into your budget from the start of the month or whenever you order your meals. I know this is something that I've really enjoyed and my wife and I have enjoyed together. And I think it's worth giving it a try for yourself. If nothing else, we got to get into this s'more kit. So if you want to try HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirlPod16 and use code AmericanGirlPod16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirlsPod16 and use code AmericanGirlPod16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Yeah, so we're going to get there. And I think where we're going to start is kind of this idea of a dad book table. And our former colleague and friend, Erin Bartram, wrote a a viral piece about this that's on her website um, about the dad book table and kind of thinking about like why there are tables that are filled with 
books where the subjects and the authors feel remarkably similar and they tend to focus or kind of fixate on the same few topics. You can also find if you search like very quickly, Barnes and Noble, a lot of major booksellers, they push certain kinds of books each year as purchases for dads and they tend to fall into a few topics. So to get into that, I came up with kind of like a a dad's table set of runoffs with authors and then topics. So we're going to kind of like rapid fire rank these. And I say this from a place of like, I have read books by all of these people and I have also read books right with all of these topics. So it's more just kind of thinking about like why this is gendered in a certain way and not saying you should never read these. right? Right. So just kind of like putting that into a frame. So if we had to pick, and this is actually kind of like, we'll start like mid-tier. Um, Jared Diamond or Nathaniel Philbrick? Nathaniel Philbrick. Ken Burns or Henry Louis Gates Jr.? This is tough. I'll choose Henry Louis Gates Jr., but it's close. What about Philbrick and Gates Jr.? Like, who wins out of that one? The hold that In the Heart of the Sea had on my life is hard to describe, so I'm going to have to still stay with Nathaniel, but what about you? It would have to be Henry Louis Gates Jr. because I love his genealogy show, but I am less captivated by his writing. So it would kind of be a tie. Okay. Jared Diamond can go. Like Jared Diamond. Yeah, we don't. Jared, opening. I'm sorry. It didn't work out. See you next Father's Day. Like higher tier, perhaps, in terms mm. of popularity. David McCullough or Ron Chernow? I'm going to pick David McCullough. Okay. I've heard he's nice. I don't know if Ron Chernow is nice, but I've heard that he's kind. Interesting. Um, if we have to put Phil Brick and McCullough against each other, like who comes out at the diamond at the top oh, of the deck book? Like we've stacked all the books right. on top and like who is top tier? What do you think is the answer? I do think it's David McCullough because yeah. for me, I've read more books by him and his dissertation on the Johnstown flood is extremely interesting. And mm. that is one of the earliest books I read by him. So I think he has great range. I can't get down with maritime stuff. And I'm really sorry. Like, I know people who listen to this love it. I loved Caroline. Beyond a certain point, like, if you're writing about a shipwreck, I don't want to be there. See, and that's like, I don't know if it's because I got too deep into Horatio Hornblower in my teens. Like, that reached me. But, I mean, anything that's, like, on a boat in, like, the 18th century, I will engage it. And in the heart of the sea, when I had to read Moby Dick in high school, I hated it. It was a huge trial for me. But something about In the Heart of the Sea, it like led me to read a first person account of like the incident on which Moby Dick was based. Like it truly took me to a place. So I always remember that as something that kind of like lit up my curiosity. So it's like a tribute to a good historian, I think, is not only I really like your writing or your subject matter, but also like here's what you inspired me to do. Like I went off and I read more books about this. And I can say that about David McCullough, too. I mean, he... I think John Adams is a good book. Controversial take. It's a great book. I don't know if it's controversial. I also like Truman. I think Truman, Truman is, is a good book. book um, but I think McCullough's Truman. I also think we have to credit, you know, for better or for worse, Ron Chernow's pretty exhaustive biography of Alexander Hamilton is source yes. material for the show. So whether yes. you liked that Broadway feature or not, I think we underestimate, you know, not that Hamilton was not a mainstream person. He's on the $10 bill. But Chernow really provided some of, at the time, like the most interesting, comprehensive views of Hamilton that was out there. And we've learned more about him since, but. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he did not speak. Biography and memoir are like up there is my favorite genre of things to read. And I do think David and Ron, if I can be on first name basis with them for a moment, I think they each have written really exhaustive biographies. I think where things get tricky is like if you look at the scope of the kinds of people they think are worthy of biography and the kinds of framings they take on for different books, like that's where we get into like dad book table territory. And like, was that something that you engaged yourself as a reader? Like, were you buying books for other people? Like, if not your dad off that book, like what is your relationship to the dad book table phenomena, if it is one? So I do not buy my dad books, but I have certainly read these books. And I think for a period of time, this to me was kind of what serious history book reading looked like because they were just so big. Mm -hmm. So it felt like if I'm really serious, I'm going to read this book. I once read um, Thomas J. Dolan's Leviathan, which I had a very hard time getting through. It's very kind of like Moby Dick universe And I stuck with it because I thought serious people read really big books about serious events or Mm. serious aspects of history. And now I think I'm a lot more liberal and kind of like what I look at or what I think about. I like books that are more in the vein of You Never Forget Your First, right, by Alexis Coe. We've talked about that before. But generally, I can't say that I dislike these books. I think they're less a problem on their own and more a problem when you are trained or kind of encouraged to believe this is the only way that you can learn about this topic. And people have written really smart counter lists or like counter ideas, you know, and part of what we're going to talk about today is this kind of mythologizing of the 1940s and World War II. You know, I'm really appreciative that I read Truman in high school and I learned a ton from it. I've also looked at Truman and that administration from other angles. So I think for me, like I never want to knock it as an entry point because if someone's reading a doorstop about history, they're still doing that. Right. Yeah. And I think they are a really great entry point into thinking about American history and, and storytelling, because I think something else that resonates about these books is they're framed as narratives. And a lot of sometimes yeah. if you buy a straightforward history book, it's more about overtly making an argument and it's less concerned with telling a captivating story. So I, I totally get how these books are fun to read because I read them and they draw you in with the story, but it's kind of like once you get in and pass the entry point, then you get to thinking about like, well, wh- why did they choose the story? Why did they tell the story in this way? Who's not in it? And what other stories can I read about or seek out myself? I remember being told in college, you know, you can set out to write, you know, the 10,000th book on a topic, like some aspect of Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. right? Or you can choose to do something different. And I think you need both kinds of history, right? You need, you need history that gives people cultural touchstones. But I made up a list of the topics that are kind of most frequently featured in these kinds of conversations and lists to kind of run through. Mm-hmm. Um, at the bottom of the pyramid, I'm going to put presidents and national parks. Which of those do you think is like more dad book table? Presidents. I'm going to have to agree with you there because I think national parks, there's also a lot of photo books. Um, of the next tier, I put Russia slash tanks because in my <laughs> mind, those are like two of the same. And then singular market commodity books, those books that try to convince you that like a potato yeah, or codfish are like, yeah, like yeah. what changed history, like which of those kind of 
and I guess tanks could also fit into that, but I'm keeping that separate. Wow. This is hard. I mean, I'm thinking about my own dad and he reads a lot of military history, which makes me want to say tanks, but Mm. I'm not sure. I think if you see a product and there's a colon, it's like you're going to be told how it changed the world. Right. Uh, I guess including our own book, which has a colon yes. in the title. But um, Very true. guns, germs, and steel seems to cover all of this ground. So maybe we'll just like pick that as like that book kind of tells all of this or like that. Re- like people were obsessed with that book for a while. Jared Diamond came. What a comeback, right? We didn't. We didn't think he would come back. back but he's back. I mean, he's kind of all of those buzzwords. With that book, um, you know, kind of a, what seems like a very small category, category, but is bigger than one would imagine. Mm. Americans in Paris. And I would put an asterisk, specifically Ben Franklin, um, <laughs> or collapse of society. I'm gonna say Americans in Paris. I think that's fair because dads don't want to feel bad on Father's Day. So I mean, maybe they do. I don't know. I'm not a dad, but like, I just well, because also the whole like Hemingway group. That would also fall under that. So I feel like that, like the hold that Hemingway by Ken Burns had over men in my life, like I don't even want to talk about it. Then I kind of rage watched it. I don't know. So that's what makes me think that would win the day. Our last two categories are World War One and airplanes or World War Two and the Civil War. Like oh, I pulled out the wow. big guns in, you know, every possible way. I feel like I'm not going to choose World War One because as you and I both learned in the trenches, so to speak, when we were doing work on World War One and presenting different places, it just doesn't get the same energy as a war that has air quotes, a clear winner, according to people interested in it. So, I mean, I'm the real battle to me is World War Two versus Civil War. And yeah, I unfortunately, for family purposes, have to choose the Civil War, and I'm not happy about that, but my dad is a huge Civil War, I guess, student of the Civil War, like lifelong, super interested in it. All of his books are basically about the Civil War, and if they're not, they're about World War II. So it's kind of like, this could really go both ways. I'm going to say on film, it's World War II as books, Civil War. I think that's fair. I think Civil War probably wins out for me. And I also find, though, that a lot of my knowledge about that war doesn't really come from these kinds of mainstream trade books, whereas a lot of what I have thought about World War II does, right? So I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of like where I make a distinction as well. And I think you're totally right about film versus books. Do you have, you know, you mentioned that you've read a lot of McCullough. Do you have a favorite book kind of in this world, like in this orbit? Um, okay. I have like two that come to mind. One is by someone we haven't named who kind of lives in both worlds, Gordon Wood. Like he's written books that are on the dad's table, but he's also was also an academic. Um, Gordon Wood wrote a book called The Americanization of Ben Franklin, who you mentioned before. And I think that's genuinely a really fascinating book about how somebody goes in their lifetime from being a subject of the British Empire to being this like person who typifies this new nation. I'm not making it seem interesting, but it's a biography and it's very good. Um, or at least I remember really enjoy reading it. And then Eric Larson's In the Garden of Beasts. I mean, I already yes. talked about In the Heart of the Sea, but this is another book that when I read it, I was just totally taken into the world. I think he's a very good storyteller. Like he's very good with narrative. So that really captured my interest. But what about you? So like I said, I like Chernow. I like his writing. I believe that his book on the Vanderbilts is really one of the best. And I've, you know, I've read other books. I'm also mentioning that because we got asked what our favorite Vanderbilt books are. 
we read Anderson Cooper's family biography for our Patreon a few years ago. And I think we both enjoyed that a lot. But I really liked part of what you're buying into with these books is like, are you willing to spend 700 pages with a singular man from history? Right. right? Like with a single male author. And there are not a ton of people that I want to pour that kind of time into. But for me, Harry S. Truman and Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt are people who are entry points into really critical eras in history. So Mm -hmm. I am kind of willing to do that. And so those two kind of different polls were very informative for me. We got a ton of great questions that are going to help us kind of talk about Nenea and Molly together. Um, But Vintage Guidebook asked us, you know, they said wartime and pre-civil rights era, terrible. But what's one thing that you do like from this period? Like what is something about the 1940s that you are interested in or you enjoy? Uh, well, do you have something that comes to mind for you? Yeah, kind of embarrassingly. Like if I could, I would wear custom clothing from the forties all the time, but it would be weird. I own a few sets of clothing from that era and I really like the styling of it. And I like the quality Mm. of the material, which is sort of fascinating based on what we can talk about later with how clothing manufacturing changed in the forties. But I own a silk suit that was made um, by an Italian company in this era. And I just really love it. I like that style. I think it would suit me. I think today where I would feel uncomfortable is it would appear as if I was trying to pull off something camp. Like, I don't think it personally suits me. We have listeners who dress in vintage clothing all the time. I think because I already wear a uniform to spend the other two days of my week in a kind of costume or something that wouldn't really feel supernatural. Right. I love it in theory, but I wouldn't be able to pull it off. Um, but mm. yeah, like that, the hairstyles of that period for white women and kind of the conventional like high fashion, I really like that style. Hmm. Yeah, I I love a lot of things about the 40s. So I like a lot of the pop culture. I would say like the fashion, I don't really dress like femme or high femme, I would say like if there's denim in the period, I'm wearing that. I do have saddle shoes that I wear and I love. So maybe that fashion speaks to me. But I actually wrote down and I know somebody else asked, like, what are books and movies we like from this period? So, you know, I want to just kind of like jump in with that. I'm a huge Katherine Hepburn fan and I love movies from the 40s. So the Philadelphia stories from the 40s. Excellent. Um, Great pairing with Cary Grant. The, I love screwball comedies, so the 40s are kind of a high watermark for those. So His Girl Friday is one of my all-time favorite movies. Casablanca, of course, is like you could call it a World War II movie. Um, Meet Me in St. Louis, classic. Um, and The Third Man, which is kind of like post-war, and Paranoia, great soundtrack. That's really great from that period. One of my all-time favorite books is The Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which was published in 1943, which is romanticizing an earlier generation. So it's like 40s period, but like almost like how we're imagining the past, like the 80s now, or like American Girl is imagining Courtney Moore now. Um, That's kind of how that book reads, like how would people in the 40s think about people in the 1910s? And then one of my favorite writers is Evelyn Waugh, which is complicated because he then gets more conservative later in life. So I and then writes up books about knights in the medieval period. But in his early years, he wrote Brideshead Revisited and all these books kind of sending up 
kind of culture in that period. And he wrote a book called The Loved One, which was I was randomly assigned in school. And I should thank my high school history teacher, but won't because he also made me read Moby Dick. But it's a fun, it's a really funny book. And it's about like a send up of the funeral industry in Hollywood in the 40s. And I know that may not sound funny, but it's genuinely very good. Um, I don't know if we should get into music now, but that's just sort of off the top of my head. We should, because I spent a ton of time looking at lists of films from the 40s. I like okay. some things that are set in that period, but I could not find a one that I like. And you I could not Anything find... from the 40s you don't like? Any film made in the 40s, you mean? That particular style is not for me. Like, I really, I have watched Philadelphia Story. I've watched those kinds of films, and they don't really speak with me. I love the humor and the style of the 1930s, and I love a lot of the music out of the 1950s. Okay. This in-between period, I had no idea until I drilled down this deep. I was like, I don't like almost any of this. And even wow. looking at the musical acts, I was like, I would not listen to any of this. I do listen to, you know, my dad loves music from the 1950s. Like the 70s and 80s are too modern for him. So I have listened to a lot of that music in my life. When it's this much older, it's just not something that I appreciate easily. Okay. But I did come up with a number of acts and I figured we could choose two or three and make our ideal USO lineup. So like if we had the Great. full latitude to run a USO 40 show, all these people can be brought back to life. Here's who I came up with. So we'll pick a few. Judy Garland, Absolutely. the Andrews sisters, Lena Horne. Frank Sinatra, Sammy Kay, Perry Como, and Bing Crosby. Okay. So do you have a lineup that you have in mind or we're doing this? To, we're picking these acts together. We have to justify I think, them. I think Bing is like the only non-negotiable for me. Like I could actually do without Judy Garland, but <gasps> I think like. No, during Pride Month, like, we are not axing Judy Garland. <laughs> I think Bing is the key for me. And I think Frank would be interesting. But I like, honestly, I could just do Bing Crosby and I could move on. Fine. Yeah. I mean, Frank, I feel like that would kind of make a spicy dynamic like Bing and Frank, because Frank is sort of on the come up or he's like at a high, like getting really popular. Is this the period before he has his toupee? I would want to know that before I commit to this. But, you know, if he's I don't know when he started wearing a hairpiece, I think it was like late 40s. But I mean, I'd just be curious, like, what are the vibes there between him and Bing Crosby, who's obviously famous much earlier? I'm including the Andrew sisters as an opening act. I don't know that they can do a full set. Like, I don't know if their songbook can can go that far. Judy Garland to close. Um, yeah. Because I feel like she would kind of bring, or actually, I would have the Andrew sisters go on. Everyone gets really up. Then we have Judy Garland come out. She hits you with, like, the man I love. Like, she hits you with her ballads. She sings Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Then we go to Frank Sinatra. Again, we're up. And then we go to Bing Crosby. See, I just need Bing. I need one song. I need Bing. And then I can go home. But you don't like the music from this era. So it's like interesting (laughs) that you're putting this together. Yeah. So it would be a short concert for you if you were the promoter or the person organizing it, I guess. It would be a short concert. And I would take on a Molly spirit and I would say there are turnips waiting for you at home. Wow. Right. Like there's other stuff to get involved in. And 
if this is being broadcast to civilians, like go pick up some scrap metal, join a knitting circle. Like let's all get back to the war. See, I'm like so opposite side of the street from you on this one because I love music from the forties. Like I'm that person who remember there was a brief moment in the sun when like swing was back and it was kind of embarrassing. And there was that gap ad with Claire Danes where she's like wearing khakis and swing. It was like, I loved that. I mean, I genuinely like League of Their Own soundtrack got me into thinking about like music from the 40s when that movie came out. And then my grandmother really loved certain people from this era, like Rosemary Clooney. She introduced me to Rosemary Clooney and I bought it and I've been trying to find the CD all day. It was a three CD set. I can see the cover of it. I don't have it anymore in across various moves and it's not on Spotify. I made my own playlist that I will share called Molly's Radio and attempt to recreate what I remember from that CD's like soundtrack. But I like swing music. I like Benny Goodman. I like Glenn Miller, RIP. His plane goes down in World War II. The Andrew Sisters, Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald. I have a wild mix of people on here, but, and Judy Garland, all kinds of stuff, but, and I'll share this out, but I mean, I totally get it not being your thing. And I remember how embarrassing it was when the Gap ad came out, because it kind of made it harder to be a fan of this kind of music for a period of time. And I feel like it has never come back again, because then there was the ska resurgence, like we won't even get into that, but like a lot of like weird nostalgia for the music that has probably impacted how people remember it, but I don't know. I like things that are sort of happy or like moods. And, you know, some of those big band tracks can just kind of be a vibe. Yeah. I think too, like there's other ways that different aspects of this era have really been with us. Like I think you can still go to a lot of places today and obviously Rosie the Riveter, right? A kind of other icon, something else like recognizable to us from the war. We got a great question from Geo Jess who asked, you know, what do we make of the fact that there's different Rosies, right? There's the initial Norman Rockwell Rosie and that presentation. And then we have, um, you know, what they describe as the more femme, we can do mm-hmm. it Rosie that has really become the icon. Do you own anything Rosie the Riveter? Like, do you secretly have a Rosie tattoo? What how, What is your connection to that character? Um, interesting. I actually have Rosie the Riveter socks and it's of the femme Rosie because I was at a historic site and they had them and it's a fraught history. Like obviously it erases like the black Rosie the Riveters and that history and so on. Um, but I also had growing up on my wall and this should have told me something about myself, but did not the G if I were a man, I joined the Navy poster, which is a variation on the, um, Rosie the Riveter. So that's kind of my interaction. Like I've participated in like the merch and I know the history of like the real person Norman Rockwell bases it on, then it gets sort of like sanitized and it obviously a lot of erasure there. But what about you? So I think I've talked about this before, but I've participated in events that are around, you know, the Rosie and like thinking about real Rosies and the park service pretty famously had a Rosie still on the payroll until last year. So a woman who was obviously advanced in age, who became very famous as a park ranger, was working at the Rosie the Riveter National Historic Site. So it's never something that I particularly liked as a visual, but I do think going to an all-girls school, it's something that was just around. And I was an assistant for a class and we did a kind of visual analysis of the difference between Norman Rockwell's version, 
right? And then the way that that is kind of adapted and some of the anti-union context of like why this particular poster is being made. But I've always found, you know, that, you know, the we can do it and the keep calm and carry on just very depressing on some level, right? Because I am a pacifist. And so part of where I see the we can do it is like, it's about not asking if we should, right? Mm-hmm. So to, to me, I kind of like have have like interesting feelings about that. But I also see that for a lot of people, it's this extremely empowering icon, right? Both the Rockwell version and the one that gets promoted by the US government. I I love some of the iconography of this period, like 30s through the 50s. I love the style of WPA art and photography that comes out of this era. So for me, it does also fit into that piece. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that like it can change your meaning. The meaning for it can change over your lifetime, like as you learn maybe more about the context or your own beliefs change or what have you. But, you know, it's kind of like you can pick any image and the way that it's um, resurrected is more interesting to me just because of what it says about the moment in which people are citing it. So it makes me think about our friend Amy Loisel and her book that's coming out on the um, protest sign for Sally Field's character when she plays Norma Ray um, holds up. She kind of does this. She's doing a cultural history of that work and like the ways that sign has lived in people's imagination and been reinvented and it kind of reminds me of that. It's like I think now it's just sort of interesting, like, what are people using it for, you know, like you're saying? Yeah, and that may also get us to one of the topics people asked about, which was thinking about women's college students. Um, and so the person who wrote in this question had a few, so we'll we'll talk about both of them. But they were kind of curious about people who were attending college and specifically women's colleges in the 1940s and the way that they interacted with the war which is obviously not Molly or Nenea's story, but could be Kit, right? If financial Mm -hmm. things turned around, could have been Kit that she would have been old enough to attend college or be part of that network. Is that something that you feel like you learned about, like women's contributions beyond like rosy or hidden figures? Or is that something that you kind of came to later, like past the dad's history table? Well, I think that's kind of the the difference between dad history books and other books where you were, would learn about this. Like, I think being a woman historian, like we had to seek out, you know, the histories of people who look like us and don't. Um, after reading the dad books, because that's not really what dad books are for. I mean, I think they're empowering because to dads or they're associated because they're they're really grounded in masculinity in a lot of ways. And if you want to read about women's history, I think some public history sites, I remember um, speaking to things like that, like women's experiences during the war, particularly local history sites are very rich on this sometimes, but also just books and like going to grad school in particular in college and that's where I was exposed to more of this history. But what about you? It's not something I really knew a lot about until I did more research on home ec at the higher education level. So I actually didn't do a ton of work on women's colleges per se in the 40s, though there's some great newer scholarship uh, like Liza Mundy's Code Girls. You can also look up, there's a great new documentary about code breakers from Wellesley. Hmm. But most of what I was interested in was more... Um, So not people at women's colleges, but people at historically black colleges or state run institutions like land grant colleges. And one of our listeners, her mom is Elaine Weiss, who wrote Fruits of Victory, Hmm. the Woman's Land Army of America and the Great War. 
we do know that's the wrong war, but part of what always has stuck out to me is the tightness of the proximity of World War One and World War Two, and living through those two decades and not knowing, right? Like not knowing when they end, the way that they replicated so many of the strategies to get young people activated as farmers or doing mm. specialized industrial work. A lot of the strategies strategies used in World War One get replayed out with things like land armies in World War Two. And I saw this photo in a local history group that I'm part of recently, and it was women making munitions and in, in a wartime factory. And the post was sort of presenting this just as, you know, like a straightforward factual thing. Like these are local women. They worked in this factory. But, you know, some of what seemed to be around it was kind of this celebratory girl boss. And mm. I just am not certain that that entirely like gets it done for me. I I find it deeply sad that a lot of working class people, their best opportunity to make a living was to make bullets for other people to kill people with like that. That doesn't excite me. Um, that really bums me out. <laughs> and, and I think that's where Rosie is very complicated for me, that yeah. women are given these opportunities, right, or to work in, um, you know, machine making or, uh, you know, making airplanes in all these contexts that have been shut out to them. But there's this very real human cost on the other side. Yeah, and I think it that makes me think about archives, too, and how much of the answers to these questions are shaped by what archives are available, which, of course, comes down to whose history people in different moments deem worthy of preserving. I mean, most of what I know about women's history in World War II when I was a child was like what my grandmothers told me about their experiences. I had one who worked in a munitions factory and, and made cargo nets, and my other grandmother um, also worked in a factory. And but then it was like jarring to go to school and it's like, oh, we're learning about FDR, which was fine. But it kind of gets to this point of like FDR wanted history to remember him and in the biggest way possible, like literally devoted his entire estate to transform Hyde Park into a museum and a presidential library so that his records would be collected and preserved for researchers to use to tell his history. And he includes Eleanor's papers in that. But I mean, how many other people in that period just either weren't thinking about preserving their stuff or their town or state or whatever weren't seeking them out or like, you know, air quotes, common people so that we can tell those stories now? Yeah, I want to highly recommend a book and I want to talk about this book again in a minute. But a friend of mine recommended Elizabeth Samet's uh, Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. And she is a faculty member at West Point. So she prepares people who are hmm. almost certainly going to war to think with literature. And the book takes a very interesting stance on mythologies surrounding World War II. Hmm. And this was recommended to me by a friend who works at the Eisenhower National Historic Site. And for folks who don't know, Eisenhower chose to retire next to Gettysburg. That was hugely important to him. So he lived on a farm. And my friend, I think one of our eight male listeners works at that farm. Shout and he said, this him. is one of my <laughs> shout out to all of you. Um, he recommended that I read this book to prepare for this episode and to think about it. Eisenhower famously said, I hate war, right? I hate the futility, the stupidity, all, all of these things, because he'd seen so much of it. And part of what is so brilliant about this book is it helps you to walk through how quickly people wanted to mythologize something that was so horrible and the mental gymnastics people have done 
trying to find meaning, right? Trying to assert that people who fought in the war thought it was meaningful and patriotic. And there's an entire section where she sees people early as the war is still happening, writing, you know, soldiers aren't coming out and being bombastic and saying that they're fighting for a good cause just because they're humble. But we know that there are. And Mm. she's saying that when you actually look at the primary sources, it's simply not there, right? This kind of greatest generation myth, this kind of building up of meaning in the war is not actually in the soldier's own words. It's being projected by other people. So I super recommend it. It's a really challenging read. She's a great writer. There's just a lot to digest. And if you love Band of Brothers, like you may have to skip a chapter because she comes, (laughs) she comes for it. it. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds really interesting. I love books that kind of take on or ask us to challenge our memory of, you know, deeply held American history myths or, you know, even how we choose to enter that space, like the books that are about, um, you know, house museums or, uh, the books we read last year, I actually read Amani Perry's book, which is not the one I'm thinking of that we talked about, but um, South to America, A Journey Below Mason Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. And um, that's a similarly interesting book. I, those would be interesting in conversation, but I'm writing that down. I'm, I definitely want to read this book. We also got questions. We got two related questions, you know, about silences and, and different gaps, perhaps in like what people have, you know, gotten information on in the past. Well, Jackie and a listener named Tier and Greer wanted to know about queer culture in this time and specifically something that isn't about concentration camps, right? So what is the history of the 1940s if you're not looking specifically at that Holocaust context and anything that you might recommend around that? I know we just did a book on Patreon that was very close to this time period, early 1950s, but if there's something that you've read or explored that you think people would like Yeah. So I think um, there's a lot of great books out there about kind of this period and just thinking about World War II, but not the concentration camps. There's a couple interesting documentaries, one of which came out around debates around Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the early 90s. And it was actually interviewing men who had served closeted. And it was really interesting because you hear their experience of like basically having to hide in plain sight and the ways that actually serving presented this moment of opportunity, like they could have community. There's like these opportunities to meet people and to explore their queerness. But then obviously like the really serious piece of it is that you would be, you know, kicked out um, and never have access to veterans benefits if you were found to be gay. And obviously that policing gets stepped up when Eisenhower passes a law in 1953 saying no federal employees can be gay. And then like thousands of people instantly lose their jobs for being accused of being gay. So, but it's like this interesting time in World War II, there were two women who were actually poster women for wax who were in a relationship with each other. Their names are escaping me right now, but they were literally like, LOL, like I can't believe we're poster girls for this like women's program. And we're actually being talked about as psychopaths. That's the word they used internally for gay people in the service. But I mean, I just want to say like, it's hard to think about something from this period that not only is not about concentration camps, but also is not like trauma porn. I think for myself, and this is again, speaking for me, I'm having a hard time reading things about how much gay people were punished for being gay right now, because it's a little bit too real. So I am seeking out things that are centering joy. And one of the things that I found um, thinking about today's conversation 
And, you know, thinking about queer people is that there was an article. Oh, I gotta find this. Where did I leave this? Okay. And it's actually about two men in the UK called Forbidden Love, the, w the World War II letters between two men. The BBC published the story in 2017. And basically what happened is this man passed away in the early 2000s and people were hired to come in and clean out his house. And they found letters and were like, oh, this is from when he served in World War II. Those are always worth something. And they sold them to an antiquity dealer without really understanding what it was. And there were letters between two people clearly in love. And one of the, the person he's writing to signs the letters G. And with a museum buys them for World War II content. And after doing just a little bit of research, discovers G is a man. And so it's like we've stumbled onto this source. And this is kind of the difficulty, again, of archives. Like you can only tell histories for which you have sources. But I love these letters. I'll link to it. But they're just like very earnest love letters between two men serving in the war, like imagining their lives after the war. And that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in. I'm also interested in like histories. You can seek out histories of Harlem in the 20s. Basically, there's an argument that gay culture, particularly gay male culture, in places like Harlem was much more open in the 20s. And then once we get prohibition, that gets more locked down or like the closet becomes more prominent post prohibition. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But there's a lot of great history to be had. I'll have to post some titles. Yeah, I'll share links to two different uh, resources, one of which just thinking about the characters that we read from the 1940s. One is an online exhibit from the University of Hawaii about sexual identity in the Pacific and how Hawaii specifically fits into that. And then the other is called Unboxing Queer History, and it's kind of like a different look at Molly's world in Illinois and like a wide ranging amount of resources that people can look at. You also may have heard of a, a novel that came out this past month, which was Mrs. Nash's Ashes. And it goes back and forth between a woman um, and her beloved neighbor who's recently passed away. And it tells her love story being in something kind of whack adjacent in Florida in the 1940s. So you get a love story from that period and you get a contemporary love story. So that's not at all what I thought that book was going to be about. But I think people who listen to this might really enjoy that too. Yeah, that sounds really cool. So we also got people who were really kind of curious. They wanted us to think a little bit about, you know, where Molly and Nenea come together or don't. And I do just want to say like, shout out to listener Emily, who says, I'm not sure if anyone told you as if this is like common knowledge, but she says, there is a weird connection between Hawaii and Beaverton, where Nenea's dad is from. I lived there for several years, actually just outside in a town called Aloha, and the number of Hawaiian crossovers was surprising. Hmm. Emily, you're a tease. I still don't really know what this means, but I love it. I love that there is like a weird connection. I don't know that we'll ever understand like why Nenea's dad is in Hawaii, but I love that Beaverton is a real place with Hawaiian connections. Yeah, and I'd be interested to know what year that town was named that because there is such an obsession in American culture when Hawaii attained statehood in the 50s. So, I mean, I wonder if it's like a late, like a rebrand or does it be even more interesting if it predates that? It's like, wow, where did that come from? So that was that was an awesome tip. And just for folks who like don't live in these books all the time, Molly starts in October 1943 canonically and goes through, you know, at least the next year. And then Nenea starts in November 1941. And I thought it might kind of help to ground us in like thinking about them together to look at what both of their books say about Pearl Harbor. 
Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. So do you have the books there? Yeah. And I was sort of thrown because uh, when I was reading Elizabeth Samet's book, she says that 50% of, 53% of people when Pearl Harbor happened had no concept that it was significant at all. <laughs> so we also got questions about, you know, how did people actually react to this when it was happening? So I'll go chronologically in terms of book and not in terms of like how we initially read these things. Um, but when you look at the inside Nenea's world, which is their peek into the past, we learned that although the islands, Hawaii, were a U.S. territory in 1941, many mainland Americans did not know where Hawaii was. That all changed on Sunday, December 7th, when the Japanese attacked the Pearl Harbor naval base near Honolulu on the island of Oahu. Suddenly, everyone knew where Hawaii was, and they knew that America was at war. Um, I think that professor would say, perhaps not. But <laughs> yes, um, was Molly your first introduction to Pearl Harbor? I think so. I don't think Molly was the first because I remember there being a kid at my elementary school who was like way too into the film Tora Tora Tora. And I, mm. I couldn't explain for anything what that was about. But the Molly book takes kind of a different tack, which it invites you to think about learning that news in a different way. They start with a photo of, this is Meet Molly, a photo of a radio and a group huddled around. And they say, if you lived in Molly's world, you probably would have had a big radio in your living room. Listen to it for fun, on and on. Many families like Molly's were listening to the radio on December 7th, 1941, when they heard an announcer say, we interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. This morning, Japanese planes attacked the American military base in Pearl Harbor. Many American soldiers and sailors were killed in the bombing of Pearl Harbor. People all over the United States were angry and wanted to fight back. They felt the faraway war they'd been hearing about wasn't so far away anymore. Like, what do you make of the differences? Like, what jumps out at you? I think Molly's book invites you to kind of enter into that moment in a very specific way as kind of a person on the mainland mm. and to kind of activate a certain kind of feeling, right, that you might also be outraged by this. And I think something that I've taken away from the Nenea books that is really positive is I do appreciate, and, and perhaps it could have been done differently, but I really do appreciate the way that the suddenness of internment as a policy being thrust on people is put at the fore of that book. And I think we also got asked, you know, what do we make of Be Forever? I really just do think the challenge is all in the pacing, right? Mm -hmm. Like being invited into Molly's living room and learning who she is as a person with foibles. We had time to develop a relationship with her and her perception of sacrifice in the war. I don't feel as though we got that chance with Nenea. I think that's definitely true. And I think there's also a way that they're just fundamentally different because Nenea's story is willing to, I think, question or like poke holes in the American project and vis-a-vis -vis like martial law being introduced and the rights being afforded different, you know, ethnicities or groups of Americans on the island is clearly very different. Whereas Molly's just accepts the project of the war wholesale, like there's no complications of citizenship or anything that she has to weather. So I think they just drop you in in very different perspectives. And Nenea, I think like you can continue the line with cloudy books of like, yes, it's it centers the story of an American girl, like who has a really complicated relationship with what it means to be American. 
was thinking a lot about, you know, the way that Tom Brokaw has really like set the tone for Mm. the way that people kind of want to engage with this. And I didn't know that this timeline was this tight. So Molly is a product of the 1980s. Nenea is a product of the last decade. Um, Elizabeth Summit writes about um, where Brokaw kind of got this interest in World War II. And she says that it started in the 1980s um, with him visiting Normandy to learn more about D-Day. She writes, by 1994, when he returned for the 50th, he had developed kind of missionary zeal for the men and women of World War II, spreading the word of their remarkable lives. And she writes about how this idea that they are birthmarked for greatness, that's a Brokaw phrase, and the greatest generation, when he's been questioned on that, he says things like, quote, this is the greatest generation any society has produced. I have the facts on my side. The thesis is impossible to prove, the narrative driven less by facts than by emotion. Mm -hmm. And I think we see how easily Molly and Anaya are a product of that, right? Like that this short window of time gets two entire characters when there are other Mm -hmm. like segments of U.S. history that have been neglected entirely. Yeah, 100%. Or they could have told the Nenea books from their perspective of like Hawaiian nationhood. Like they could have just totally done the point of view differently or like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think our obsession with World War II is going to end anytime soon. But I think it's interesting that at least we're willing to have more public conversations about like, what are the stakes of choosing to remember it this way? Yeah. And it's helpful, I think, sometimes to have like other voices in your head, right? Like I think part of the problem with like having one table with one certain kind of voice over and over. Um, George Orwell wrote an essay in 1946 where he talked about like the early myths that were coming out about the war, um, naming the number one myth as, quote, the United States went to war to liberate the world from fascism and tyranny. And there's this other point that he makes, um, which I think is like something that really took me aback about Molly. World War II was a foreign tragedy with a happy American ending. And in her analysis of it, Samet writes, the fifth insists that war, at least when we prosecute it, is not a tragedy, but a comedy in the rich literary sense of a comedy as a plot that restores order out of chaos, sorts winners and losers, enlarges the circle of justice and thereby declares victory. I was like, if I ever felt weird before about the Miss Victory scene, I feel really <laughs> weird about it now. Yeah. I I mean, it's hard not to, especially after hearing that passage. And it just kind of, I think you can see that reluctance to glom onto any narrative that doesn't present a clear, happy ending for Americans as something that you can see in how we tell stories about climate change and so many other things. And, you know, you just wonder, it's like, okay, so if you identify that as a trope or a trend, like, how do you actually reverse it? And I think if you look at how people have told stories about Vietnam, for example, which was a counter to this, like clearly no happy ending there for Americans. It's just like you tell stories about existential disillusionment on an individual level. And it seems like people are unwilling to kind of get at like maybe structural changes that should result here. Yeah. And I think part of what these books help us to see is, and I also want to drop another book, Her Cold War, Women in the U.S. Military. One of our listeners, Tanya Roth, has written to us about, you know, like what could have happened to Molly, right? Like where does that patriotic zeal go next? And one of the ways that it may have gone next is her signing up for the military. This idea that we have both Nenea and Molly kind of in opposite parts of the United States, but going through this same thing, which is this 
drive to put on a patriotic front to do patriotic activities a lot of i think the more recent scholarship that's pretty critical of this myth making is showing most people actually weren't energized to do this they actually weren't terribly thrilled to do it and what gets kind of packaged to us as like an exciting moment to step up was a horrific world tragedy so i think reading people like tanya roth like going on the library of congress looking at their rationing page where you can see the choices people actually had to make about clothing or um, someone else that we've connected with through this show Jessica Pierce Rotondi wrote an awesome book about her family's journey mm. with the Forbidden War in Laos and different family stories. Hers is called What We Inherit. I think those are really interesting books that speak to topics that people absolutely have an interest in, but give us a different angle, give us a new layer of appreciation. Yeah, that's interesting. I definitely want to check out these books in Tanya or Tanya's book. Um and specifically thinking about like, well, what does it mean for women to enter? Like, what is their investment in trying to enter the military in the 50s? Like, what do they think they will personally get out of taking part of that national project? Like, is it something to prove their value? Or like, is that like, as opposed to the Rosie the Riveter formation, that's like, look, we can do work typically done by men. And then we choose, this is a wrong narrative, but choose to surrender it to return home after the war. It's like, what does it mean then for women to go into military service. Yeah, in Roth's book, she wrote to us, you know, a lot of it is not just about women choosing, but women being recruited in ways mm. they had never been before. Women being pushed towards a certain kind of military service and Molly being 18 in 1952, right at this exact moment where there would have been a push, someone like her, right? A father with military background, someone who'd done service, literal Miss Victory like would have been a prime candidate in this new idea of recruiting women. Um, yeah. We also got a great voicemail from a listener named Nina. Hi, Allison and Mary. My name is Nina. Um, I love your show. I've been listening since um, the New York Times article, so for quite a while. And um, I just wanted to respond to your... Um, oh, and I love all the Discord and I do all the watch-alongs and everything, so more of that. I love it. Um, I uh, wanted to respond to your question about listeners' encounters with um, 40s and 50s histories. Um, I wanted to share that I used to feel this, like, deep sense of guilt and shame for not being able to, like, lock in on a good history book and um, really, like, wanting that experience but feeling like I didn't have the toolkit to decipher, like, what is old white men rewriting our history and what is real and what is um, um, going to really help me understand the world. And um, your show totally cracked that open for me. And so I really appreciate that. Um, and it also coincided around the time I started listening, I also read a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, not a dad history book, but one of the Blanche Wiesen Cook series. And then I read All the Rest and like a million other books about Eleanor and became obsessed. And um, that that combined with your show and all your great book recommendations really helped me understand a little bit more about how to dig into the history of our country. And, um, you know, I haven't stopped since. I've loved it. I've become obsessed with reading history books and always looking for new recommendations. And I also, um, because of Eleanor, started, uh, went back to school for a graduate degree in public policy with human rights advocacy as a concentration. 
and I'm about to graduate. So that never would have happened without your show, and I just wanted to say thank you and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Bye. Well, first of all, congrats. That's amazing. Congrats to you being done with grad school. It's self a life accomplishment. And I just want to say before I keep answering, like, I hope you celebrate more like FDR and less like Eleanor, who like no shade. I don't know that that was her skill set. You probably remember this from reading different Eleanor bios, but famously FDR would host a cocktail hour where he would mix drinks in the White House at night during the war as like a kind of brief respite from dealing with the war and the ongoing depression and so on. And literally Eleanor would show up and be like, so anyway, I visited a coal mine and I need to talk about labor issues with you. And he'd be like, girl, can I get five minutes of peace? Anyway, um, congrats again. And thank you for your kind words about our show. Um, You know, I think that's kind of what I was saying earlier about what I really credit great historians with is not just, and I'm not saying we're great, but I'm just saying the books I have most enjoyed have always inspired me to keep going on a certain topic and keep wanting to learn more. And, you know, it's really cool. I'd love to hear like what she's reading now. And also Eleanor Roosevelt bios are like such an amazing rabbit hole to take yourself down. My God, there are so many great books. She mentions reading the ones by Blanche, um, which are intense. Like she is, I would love to be Blanche's friend, point blank, period. And, but there's just so many, like, do you have a favorite Eleanor Roosevelt book or like related to Eleanor? I think the thing that actually made me connect with Eleanor Roosevelt was reading My Day Mm. because it felt like I understood something about her better. I find the length and the complexity of her life really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably most interested in the stuff that she did around the UN. When she was writing those, you know, daily articles, My Day, I really like those because I think it gives me a sense of how much work it took to be Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. Like, I'm not terribly interested in people who are billionaires who seem to be doing a lot, right? Who are super busy. Like, I would pay a lot of money to read, obviously, an autobiography by Taylor Swift. I would love to read her road manager's autobiography. Mm. Like, that to me is so interesting. Like, the work and the stamina that it takes to, like, be the personality and the person directly behind mm-hmm. that. Eleanor is both like Eleanor was the driving force I in my mind behind a lot of FDR's successes and then she has her own life after his death and so I love reading those articles and like connecting with her own words there yeah I agree I mean there's this line in Jane Eyre that's always stayed with me where at one point this guy who's like trying to creep on her he's a missionary and he wants to marry her he's like hey girl, like you are made for work, not for love. When she's like, but I'm not in love with you. And he was like, you are made for work, not for love. Like in other words, come with me, be a missionary. doesn't matter if we're not in love. You know, she doesn't do that. Does it end better for her? That's up for debate. But I always think about that line with Eleanor Roosevelt because it's like she really saw herself as someone who was made for usefulness, like big time progressive energy. And there are so many, as you say, chapters in her life and the real work, like she was not just the figurehead, but she was like her own chief of staff. And I think No Ordinary Time was one of the first books by um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, which is about her marriage to FDR during the war years, was something that I read when I was in my teens. It made me really want to be a historian or like continue to be interested in it because she was so deep in Eleanor's archive. And so I would recommend that book for people who are just like passingly interested who want to read a book on both of them and get interested. And then also like as a counter to the dad book, the podcast presidential by the Washington Post 
did an episode about each president in order. And when they got to FDR in a real power move, they chose to make the entire episode about Eleanor. So if you are just curious, you should go listen to that. And it's really good. Also in this world, Criminal has a new episode about like early women in the military, 1940s, 1950s. So people might want to check that out, kind of read that alongside Tanya Roth's book, right? Kind of think about like what a future for Molly would look like. We also have a book club as part of what we do with folks on the Patreon, and we are reading the new book called Hula, which is getting absolutely amazing reviews. And I have heard from a lot of people who are already very deep into it that they like it a lot. So if you want to have, you know, more conversation, people chat just on the Discord, but you can also join us for, um, you know, like an on-camera or off-camera discussion on one of the voice channels. Very cool. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else we can recommend on this topic. There's so much we can say. I did make a Spotify playlist called Molly's Radio, which I will share out with some 1940s jams. Um, We've recommended a lot of books, which hopefully we will collect somewhere and further recommend to you. I always want to recommend to you with World War II stuff, the book Belonging by Nora Krug, which is a book I gift frequently because it's physically so beautiful. It's a graphic memoir where she goes to Germany to explore her family's relationship to the Nazis, like her ancestors were Nazis. She was born and raised in the United States, never knew these relatives. And the book begins with a memory of her being on vacation with her parents in Italy, and she's in a cemetery. Don't know why they're there. And then her dad kind of darts off from the family and they go up to where he is and he's standing in front of a cemetery that says his name. And they're like, dad, like, this is so creepy. And he was like, no, that's my brother. And it's a dead Nazi. Mm. And essentially, like, she finds out that his her grandparents had a son who was obsessed with Hitler, like very enthusiastic Nazi who's killed in the war. And they immediately have another child who they name after this child. And that's her dad. So she, with no relationship to it herself, obviously, is like, what does it mean that I do have this family history? that I'm ashamed of, like it's, you know, how do I unpack this? So that's a really beautiful book that I I always like to recommend. And send us your recommendations. We'd be happy to kind of keep a list going, right? Of like additional things that people are interested in. I feel like we got so many other interesting questions, but one, I will force us to stick to just these two 1940s books. If you wanted to have an adult for like an American women series out of this universe, which adult from one of these books would you choose to get their own, you know, series? An adult from any of the American Girl or you're saying it has to be Molly or Nenea? Has to be Molly or Nenea. I don't know. Like, I just don't really care about any of the adults in those books. Like, no offense. My top two answers are, of course, Tia Dolores is number one. Like, I think that's everyone's number one. But my number two is Aunt Cordelia, because I feel like she would have a story to tell, to put it mildly. I feel like Dad has some questions to answer. I do feel like one of our other voicemails addressed the fact that Dad was described as a POW on the recent SNL sketch. That is not accurate. Oh. He was a doctor serving voluntarily. But I feel like Dad has some stuff to answer for, as well as Mrs. Guilford, the iconic housekeeper oh, who like forces yeah. the turnip issue. So like, I'm sure there's a story there. I'm sure there's a story there, but it's like, do I want to spend a whole book with an arc? Like, I don't know. Yep. I don't know. So if people want to share their recommendations with us, tell us more stories, how, what's the best way to get in touch with us and in touch with you, Allison? 
So we are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We have a website. We have all that information out there, Dolls Lives Pod. I can be found at Allison Harks on Twitter or Instagram. Pretty easy to find in those places. Where should people find you? It's the easiest way to find me is on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. I love to hear from everyone. And I am on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123, but admittedly, I spend less time on Twitter these days. And if you'd like to pre-order our book, you can go to our website, dollsofourlivespod.com, and you can order it from there or from any of our links in our socials. So thank you for listening, everyone, as always. And we'd love to see you on our Patreon where we keep these conversations going and talk about so much other great stuff. And we will see you on our next episode.